So last Sunday, just want to review real quick about what went on as far as the message. And uh, I always like to do this so that we're kind of fresh with that and moving on to the next thing. But uh, last Sunday, we talked about from Mark chapter 9, uh, verses 42 through 50, about uh, don't mislead don't, or impede, just succeed. Just succeed. And uh, we looked at verse 42, where basically it was a, uh, the, the point of don't mislead by causing a follower of Christ to sin. We need to make sure that we do what we're doing to encourage one another and not make, make sure we're, we're uh, uh, on track. Um, and, and how do we cause a Christ follower to sin? Well, talked about a few things. We can do that directly, publicly persuading that person. We can do it indirectly, um, maybe not speaking to their face, but they see how we live our lives. Uh, we might privately provoke them in some way. We can also um, cause a Christ follower to sin by leaving a bad example, um, doing what we should not. And then also, too, we can leave no example at all, which is not doing what we should do. So there's a lot of different ways we need to be on guard with in, in um misleading someone, causing a follower of Christ to sin. And Jesus mentioned what the cost of that should be, and, and we should be you know, thrown in the, in the lake with uh, one of those millstones hung around our necks before we make one of these little ones to, to stumble. And then uh, the second point here about impeding. Don't impede by causing yourself to sin. In verses 43 through 48, we talked about that. And... Uh, uh, different things about uh, uh, what we should be cutting off. And, of course, Jesus was using some uh, examples, but we should be going around armless and legless and eyeless. <laughs> we should make sure and realize that uh, all those things, we could, we could still cut off the hand that, that sins, but the hand isn't the one that starts the sinning. It starts from the heart, and we need to be reminded of that um, no matter what we cut off. It should be the heart that, is, that needs to be brought before God for Him to cleanse and, and start from there. And then uh, we also talked about succeeding, just succeed by living out the cause of Christ. And how do we do that? It's found in verses 49 through 50. For everyone will be salted with fire, so we need to embrace suffering and sacrifice. And then he goes on, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? So we need to pursue Purity and don't become spiritually contaminated. Ways that we can uh, live out the cause of Christ. And then finally he says, have salt in yourselves. So we need to intentionally influence those who are lost. Get out there. Let them know what Jesus has done for you. And then one last thing is that uh, we need to be at peace with one another. And I think that's a good message for all of us these days. And something we need to uh, practice uh, daily. So today we're going to be looking at message of uh, uh, having us uh, in chapter 10, having us uh, learn how to improve our serve. How can we improve our serve? A mother was preparing pancakes for her two young sons, and they began to argue over who would get the first one. Not wanting to miss a teachable moment, the mom said, well, if Jesus were sitting here, he would probably say, let my brother have the first pancake. And the older brother turned to his younger sibling and said, okay, you be Jesus. 
and I get pancakes. I'll let you figure that out later. Uh, anyway, sometimes servanthood doesn't come naturally. <laughs> I tend to assume that we have our share of servant-minded people, though, in, in, in our congregation here in this church. And each of us can still improve, though, in our servanthood in some measure, somehow. Always learning, always improving. The trouble is that our default setting is selfishness. Our default setting is not other-centeredness, looking out for the needs of others. In order to improve our serve, we must seek the Savior, Savior and also follow his example. Look to him, what does he do? And follow that. We have been redeemed for a reason. We're saved to serve and prepared to share. We need to let other people know what God has done for us and look how we can serve others in a tangible way. In this chapter of Mark, chapter 10, Jesus addressed the real intention for marriage when the Pharisees test Jesus with the issue of divorce. You see that in the first portion of this chapter. Then Jesus explained with the help of children present that we should trust God with a child's simplicity and receptivity, being able to receive God and, and live out that way in a, in, a, in a childlike way. And when the rich young man then came a little later in that chapter, he came uh, and, and asked the question of how to inherit eternal life, Jesus used that moment to show that we shouldn't let our possessions or money keep us from following him. We should set those aside, and, and he should be priority in our lives. And then Jesus shares about his death and resurrection in verses 32 through 34. Let me read those, uh, those verses to you. It says, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So right after hearing this, you look at the two disciples, two of the disciples, what they do in verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Okay, were they not listening? <laughs> what was going on? It's like you're having a conversation with someone on topic A, and they're like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And all of a sudden, they ask something about a topic B, and you're going... Uh, did you just hear me or not? We were just talking about this. Now you're talking about something else? Are you with me or not on this? What's going on? But it didn't take them long to move from being astonished and, and afraid, as verse 32 speaks of, being astonished and afraid of what he was talking about, to having an attitude of arrogance. They went from feeling emotional to feeling entitled. <laughs> this isn't the first time the followers of Christ get all caught up in who's the best or even the favorite. Right after Jesus made his first prediction of his upcoming suffering, Peter argued with him, No, not you, Lord. That's not going to happen to you. And after his second prediction of suffering and sacrifice, the disciples argue among themselves. Jesus calls them out by asking what they were talking about, and in chapter 9 of Mark, in verse 34, gives us their, their response. But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. The disciples never, never really seemed to figure out the importance of selfless servanthood while Jesus was, was still alive. And in fact, during the last, last supper on the night before his death, 
we read these words in Luke chapter 22, verse 24. I mean, we just had communion right now. They had the Last Supper going on. And here in that, this portion of Scripture in Luke 22, verse 24, it says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Can you believe that? It's like after we had communion right now, then someone says, well, I wonder who's going who's gonna to be able to be up front here in front of everyone. I wonder who's going to notice what I've done. You know, <laughs> Okay, we're not focusing on that. <laughs> we're focusing on what God has done for us and what's going to be happening, especially with the disciples here, what's going to be happening with Jesus. So as we come to our text today, we'll see that we're more like those first followers than we probably care to admit. <laughs> we get a little off base sometimes, and we don't quite stay on target. If we want to live differently than the disciples did, we must incorporate at least four attitudes and actions I'll share with you here today that will help us improve our serve, as we find this in this portion of Scripture. The first one we need to look at, of course, or consider, is to ponder our purposes. Ponder our purposes. What is motivating you on these things? In Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 and 21, which you're going to see behind me, it says Mark, but actually it is Matthew 20 and 21. We see a fuller picture of what's going on. Even though they're called the sons of Zebedee, these men are actually mama's boys. <laughs> they have a mom that looks out for them. And functioning like a, a helicopter parent, this, this mom appeals to Jesus on their behalf. We see this in Matthew 20, verses 20 and 21. It says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are, are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. So, yeah, mom, helping out her sons. And when we go back to Mark's account, amazingly, these guys ask for a blank check from Jesus. They say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. <laughs> okay. I don't know if that's ever something that, that's in Jesus' wheelhouse. I, I doubt it is. But sometimes we approach him in that way when we expect him to fulfill what we want to have happen. It might not be a regular blank check, but sometimes that happens. But they want Jesus to say yes even before he hears what they want. They're treating him like a genie who, who will grant them their wishes, right? Of course, he, he can't. Well, that, that, that genie couldn't bring anyone back to life, couldn't ha have anyone fall in love with anyone, and of course, you couldn't wish for more wishes. But we sometimes act that way before Jesus. Lord, we want you to, I, I, I wish for this to happen. I want, and, and that's okay. You pray for that to happen. But if God says, no, <laughs> we need to move on. We need to move on. You know, but before coming down too hard on them, again, we, we do the same. Instead of saying to the Savior, we want you to do whatever we ask of you, we should be praying something like this. We want to do for you whatever you ask of us. So we need to be careful, make sure that the emphasis is more on what we can be doing for God. God's going to work out things in your life. He's going to give you what you need. Maybe, maybe what you want. But he definitely will give you what you need. 
In verse 36, Jesus asks them to put their request into words in order to reveal their own selfishness. What do you want to do? What do you want me to do for you? They're ready with their rehearsed request, though, in verse 37, as you see behind me. They replied, let, let one of us sit at your right and one uh, and, and the other at your left in your, in your glory. And to sit at the right hand is usually the highest position, and uh, the seat on the left hand is just below that. They wanted the two top spots with Jesus. Now, again, before we get too tough on these guys, Jesus did say in Matthew 19, verse 28, he says, I tell you the truth at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you, ha you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So they got that part right. They'd be sitting with Jesus. But their methods were a bit messy because their motives, their purposes, were, were all mixed up. Warren Worsby, he comments, he says, Jesus spoke about a cross, but they were inter interested in a crown. <laughs> they wanted the glory. They wanted, to, wanted that crown part of it, but uh, Jesus was speaking of the cross. It's really easy for our motives to get out of whack at times. James and John wanted closeness. They wanted position. They wanted power and importance. They wanted to be the closest to Jesus, and they wanted to be higher than anyone else. And their mother desired the best for them. What mother wouldn't want the best for their, for their sons, right? But the problem was, all three of them wanted their will done in their way and in their time. Their problem is still the same problem for us today. We want what we want how we want it, and when we want it. Just go back to your last prayer session with, with God. And you were praying for something that urgently had to happen. And you let God know, there's a deadline, Lord. It needs to happen. It needs to happen. You're asking him to work in your, your time schedule. When God's perfect timing is what we need. Now, there's the urgency, I, I understand. There's the the concern, and we need to voice that to him, but we also, too, in the same way, voice our willingness to submit to his will, what he has for that situation. If we want to improve our serve, we must first learn to ponder our purposes. So in serving, we need to ask ourselves, why do you do what you do? <laughs> Why do you do what you do? do? Have you ever noticed how difficult it is to have pure motivation? Our purposes, our motives are often misaligned. And just look at the, the Pharisees. <laughs> they were motivated to do good by their desire to receive glory and rewards and praise from men. They wanted the best seat at the dinner parties, the nicest clothes, the great recognition. These men understood that religion could be used as a means of personal gain, and they used it for that purpose. While the words spoken by the Pharisees were often true, and, and the deeds often godly, their purposes were hugely misaligned. was not in line with what God wanted to have happen. As best we can, we need to get our reason for serving straightened out. 
Let's not serve to impress others or to try to gain favor with God like the Pharisees. The world, the world says actions speak louder than words. That's true. God's word says motives speak louder than actions and words. <laughs> what are your purposes? What's your motive in this? Here's a quote I came across this week that probably will make you pause and think. It says, one of the great struggles of life is not trying to discern God's will. It's trying to disown my own. <laughs> not trying to figure out what God's will is, but it's to dis- disown my own will. That's probably the biggest struggle. Because we want what we want when we want it. We need to let that go and allow God to provide what we need when we need it. When faced with their mixed up motives, Jesus asks a question to reveal what they were thinking. He says, what do you want me to do for you? A truthful answer to this same question can help you and and also myself to ponder our purposes. Here are some related questions to ask when you're not sure about your motivation, not sure about your purpose in the, uh, behind your, what you're doing. What is it I want? What is it I want when I'm serving someone? Why am I doing this? Who, who am I serving here? <clears throat> and who do, who do I want to impress? Am I trying to impress some people around me or... If you're trying to impress God, am I doing this for God's glory or for my own glory? <laughs> these questions will help us be able to figure out how, why we're doing some of these things. And again, to try to realign our motives in this. So ponder, ponder our, our, our uh, purposes, and then... Another way of being able to uh, improve your serve is prepare for problems. (laughs) Prepare for problems. After James and John make their bold request, Jesus responds rather bluntly in verse 38. He says, you don't know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? So in essence, he's really saying you don't have a clue what you're asking. Do you really understand what you're asking in this? That word cup has a, has a symbol, was a symbol of suffering or affliction. And to drink means to take something deep inside. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. He says, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And the cup stood for God's wrath and judgment, as also seen in Isaiah verse, uh, chapter 51, verse 17. It says, Awake, awake, rise up, O Jer- Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. Baptism often involves someone being fully submerged in water. You've been to baptisms, you see that happen. The idea here is that Jesus is about to be fully immersed in extreme suffering. And this is illustrated also too in Psalm 69, verse 2, where David writes, I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. The image there. 
And on top of all the physical pain Jesus mentions just before this passage of Scripture in Mark chapter 10, Jesus is about to experience the, 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 the wrath of His righteous and holy Father as He takes the sins of the entire world on His shoulders. Christ died on the cross as a substitute for, for sinners. We should, we should have died. It should have been us. But Jesus took our place. He took our sins and in our place bore the punishment that we deserved. This was a full payment for sins, which satisfied both the wrath as well as the righteousness of God. So that He could, he could forgive sinners without compromising His own holy standard. The perfect sacrifice for our sins was made in Jesus. Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26 says, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And unbelievably, both James and John answer this pointed question with complete confidence in verse 39. They say, we can. We are able. And it seems that they were a bit too eager in their response, almost like kind of like Peter. Maybe they're learning too much from Peter, uh, jumping in and answering quickly. But Jesus reinforces this when he says, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. They wanted glory. But Jesus tells them to get ready for some grief and to prepare for some problems. It's coming. Now, while we don't always know in advance how much we're going to suffer, we do know that if we're serious about following Christ, serious about serving Him wholeheartedly, we will face difficulty. It will happen. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29 says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for Him. <laughs> James didn't suffer long, though, because he lost his life as the first of the twelve to be martyred. John lived to be about 95, but his life was filled with difficulty, ending with a, a, a banishment, the island of Patmos, and James was ex executed, and John was exiled. <laughs> and it may be a short, it may be long, but there's going to be moments where you're going to feel that difficulty. You're going to feel the problems. If you're serious about serving, then get ready to, to suffer. <laughs> you might be taken home early like James, or you may battle a long time like John. I remember sitting with uh, Lois Norcross, one of our Wonderful prayer warriors and saints of the church. Sitting with her when she was in a care facility, actually a foster care home. And she couldn't understand while she was still with us. <laughs> she wanted to go home with Jesus. But she still was fighting the good fight, praying and doing what she could from, from her bed. And uh, you think about those people sometimes. You think, God, do you know what you're doing, really? <laughs> they, they must be so much better with you right now. But he wasn't finished with her yet. And the same thing is for you as well. Whatever God has for you, he's going to work in your life. And he's got his plan. And he's not done with you yet. 
no matter where you're at, how old you are, what part of life you're involved with, he's got something for you. And we need to follow that. But it might be early like James, it might be long like John, but to drink of the cup has reference not only to suffering, but refers to remaining faithful to the end. This phrase gives the image of draining the entire cup until it's emptied. Drinking it all. Well, there's nothing better than serving Jesus. It will not always be easy. If you're serving in a ministry right now, in some way in leadership here at the church, chances are you've already experienced some difficulties. Leadership comes with some decision-making. Decision-making comes with people not agreeing, and then you're going to have some difficulties. But if you haven't had those yet, you will. That's a great recruiting campaign, right? Come join me in ministry and suffer for the Lord. That'll be great. I would imagine these last couple of years, difficulty has been the companion of those in ministry. With all that is going on with our world, the different restrictions, the stuff that we can and cannot do as a church, as, as a follower of Christ. I know I've, I've spoken with pastors within our conference, and they have said, I, I'm about done. And in fact, I was talking with one, and we were sharing back and forth, and he said he came to a point where he was praying, and he goes, he, he prays, uh, finds a good place to do that, and as he's praying, he's saying, God, I am done. The church is doing these things. They're divided on, on all these different issues. There's no one together. I'm tired. I'm done. And as he was sitting there praying that, he felt God just impress on his heart. He said to him, you're not done. You may feel done, but I will let you know when you're done. I guide that. I direct that. I orchestrate that. And as he shared that with me, because I was one of those pastors as well, this has been rough. Two years have been difficult for ministry. And to see the situations going on where we are bound by some things, and then also see the division that has happened among believers. To see our church family dwindle down, to see our church stagger along in the last couple of years. I believe we're getting our footing. I think we're getting our traction, though, and we're moving forward. But in those, those moments, I was, I was pretty much done, too. You got to thinking, well, yep, teaching sounds pretty good. I could go back to that. And some of you are going, no, don't do that. Don't do teaching. That's, the, that's even worse. But I, 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 could, I could, really, I could agree with that pastor who was saying, I'm done. But his words, his testimony of what God was doing in his life spoke to mine as well. And I was thinking, okay, yeah, you know, I feel like I'm done, but I'm not. God's got plenty to do, and he's not through yet. The cup isn't emptied yet. Need to continue on. Need to move forward. We may feel done, whatever you're involved with. God has got something for you, and if that cup isn't empty, you still have plenty to do. God has a lot 
for you to do still. We continue on until that cup is empty. And we do a disservice by promising that the Christian life will be trouble-free. <laughs> Receive Jesus as your Savior and it's all roses and light and rainbows. Not really. Roses have thorns <laughs> and uh, they hurt. But we, if we promote that kind of ministry as a piece of cake and all that, we're, we're not really helping new believers. <laughs> it will cost you to serve Christ. Are you willing to pay the price? Is it worth it to you? And then in verse 40, Jesus says, But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. So I don't know how James and John responded to that. Probably it was a good answer. They probably received that. So after pondering our purposes and preparing for problems, the third way to improve our serve is to promote others primarily. Promote others primarily. In case you're wondering how the other ten felt when they saw that James and John were trying to grab the power positions, look at verse 41. <laughs> when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Here we go. Peter must have probably... You know, really been upset as well, too, since he was also part of the inner circle. How come Peter wasn't there? And those two jump in, and they try to elbow their way into being first with Jesus. I'm sure Peter had something to say about that as well. But the word indignant means to be greatly afflicted and sorely vexed. Vexed, to be angry, frustrated. They were really mad that these two were using their their mommy to get special treatment, and they, were, they weren't going to give up the, the top spots without a fight. We've been here too. With Jesus called us in this ministry. We could be up there as well. They weren't appalled by their lack of understanding of true servanthood. They were upset that these two got to Jesus first. <laughs> the spiritual attitude of the ten was not any better than that of the two. And here is what Jesus has to work with. <laughs> when a spirit of competition and jealousy enters a group, there's some things that happen. There's fallout, retaliation. There's a, a desire to get ahead leads to others being left behind. Selfishness always results in dissension. And when we think of only ourselves, community breaks down. We don't want to be with each other. And unity is replaced with division and backbiting. All when the spirit of competition and jealousy enters in. Look at what Jesus does next in the first part of verse 42. Jesus called them together. Jesus called them together. That's exactly what needed to happen when, there's, when, when this situation arose. It is exactly what needs to happen these days when, when tension and strife arise. We need to get with Jesus. We need to come to Jesus together. And when Jesus calls them to himself, he does so with, with tenderness and with understanding. Can you picture him calling a huddle, coming together, and saying something like, you know, okay guys, gather around, come on, let's form a real tight circle, come on in, get close, get a little closer, so you can hear what I'm about to say, all right? He's looking in their eyes, come on, all right, get some real close. Gets them to, to get their focus off what was going on there and back on to him and what was happening. 
He knows their default is set on selfishness, so he calls them together. He doesn't take the two brothers aside and give them a tongue lashing. Neither does he slam the ten for being indignant. He simply brings them back to community and then gives them a lesson in how differently things are to run in his kingdom. And there's a huge difference between the idea of, of servanthood of Jesus and the world system they live in. He tells them that. He says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. The world's way teaches that we should spend all our energy to get to the top. And then when we get to the top, we can boss all the others around. We can tell them what to do, because that's what others did to me, and I can finally do it to them. When Jesus reminded them that seeking power was a Gentile or a pagan practice, he was actually telling them they shouldn't operate this way. You see, rabbis often use Gentile illustrations as negative examples. Don't be like those Gentiles. And they wouldn't want to do that. And verse 43 begins with a rebuke as Jesus reframes their understanding. He says, not so with you. A Christ follower must not operate this way. And the meaning here is, it shall not be, or it must not be. In the family of God, there is only one category of people, and that is servants. We should all be servants. And notice the rest of verses 43 and 44. It says, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. This was a countercultural and radical teaching for Jesus that defined success in terms of servanthood. Didn't make sense, I'm sure. And that word servant is the word used for table waiter and, and is the root of the word for deacon. You've heard of that before, haven't you? <laughs> deacon? It literally means one who waits on and serves others. And the word slave refers to those who are owned by another and is completely submissive to the wishes and demands of the master. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And if the disciples wanted to be the leaders in, in his kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, they first had to promote others. So what is this servant? What is a servant, really? It's someone whose heart is intent upon and whose will is bound to the will and wishes of another. You're looking out for the needs of someone else. You're looking out for what they would like to have happen in their life. If I am your servant, then what you say goes. You have the last word, not me. And let's think through the, the difference, though, between a servant and a volunteer, because there are a lot of volunteers that help out. A lot of areas that, that can happen. But there's a difference between servant and a volunteer. A volunteer chooses when and if to serve. On their own time, on their own schedule. A servant serves no matter what. A volunteer serves when convenient. A servant serves out of commitment. And someone said it well, uh, the servant does what he is told when he is told to do it. The volunteer does what he wants to do when he feels like doing it. <laughs> Jesus didn't recruit volunteers. He saved us to be servants. And we need to remember that. 
Someone wrote this. He said, Lord, I want to do what you ask in the way that you ask for as long as you ask because you asked. That should be our prayer as well, too. That we are willing to do this because he asked us to do so. But, of course, in his way. One of the clearest biblical images of this uh, single-minded resolve to put others first is found in Psalm 123, verse 2. It says, As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. When the master moves his finger to command something, there, whatever, that servant simply does it, simply obeys. A true servant is one who has learned to conquer the, 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 the independence of self and to bend the will to the wishes of another. You might not want to, but you will do it because that's what needs to be happening. And here's the principle. If we want to become truly great, then we must give up personal rights and serve others. If we want to become truly great, then we must give up personal rights and serve others. If there's anything we should get today and help us to get through these next few months and years ahead, is that right there. Looking to serve others. When we come next Sunday and be ready to be masked or unmasked or whatever it is, we should be willing and ready to have grace and 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 serving others in whatever way. Jesus is saying something like this. He's saying, consider everyone as someone to be served and consider everyone to be your master. <laughs> That's a tough place to put yourself in. But we must take opportunities to, to serve because we are obligated to serve. And remember that the true test of whether you're a servant is to consider how you respond when you're treated like one. How does it feel when you're treated like a servant? And finally, let me conclude here with uh, the fourth way of being able to improve your serve. Let's pick up the perfect pattern of Jesus. Pick up the perfect pattern of Jesus. Jesus shakes up our self-centered motives. He tells us to prepare for problems, challenges us to promote others, and in case we're wondering how to do this, he offers himself as that perfect role model. If you look at verse 45, it says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus served the needs of others and then demonstrated the ultimate act of servanthood when he gave his life as payment for our sins. I, I particularly like the word ransom there, and I think Becky does too. Not only because it's the name of our first grandchild, of course. But that word has, been, has some, some special meaning, very special meaning in Scripture. The image of the word ransom is of slaves being offered on the marketplace and someone paying the price to set them free. Someone. They don't, don't need to know them. Just someone coming to pay the price to set them free. Jesus gave his life voluntarily. And what he did was for us instead of us in our place. He did that. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. He paid the price. And in exchange, we are set free. 
(laughs) We give him our rottenness. And in exchange, he gives us his righteousness. What a great deal. (laughs) During my sharing at local conference about our church back in the early part of February, I concluded that we are doing what we can with what we have wherever we're at. That's basically our, our movement moving forward. We want to be used by God whenever, wherever, for whoever, doing whatever. Whatever, it, we just want to be involved. We want to do it. That can translate into four challenges for us in the area of serving. Serve whenever you can. Serve wherever you can. Serve whoever is in need. Be willing to do whatever it takes. Do you need to improve your serve? You follow these things and what Jesus lays before us here in this portion of Scripture in Mark chapter 10. Ponder your purposes, prepare for problems, promote others, pick up the perfect pattern of Jesus. If that's not enough letter P's for you today, I I, I trust you can find some more somewhere. But To help you remember it, though, and be able to improve your serve We need to put that into practice. We need to live it out. So I trust that this week, you'll have plenty of opportunities to do these things that Jesus asks us to do to improve your serve as well. I'm going to have the worship team come on up. They're going to lead us in a couple songs. And I trust that this first song will help us be able to realize, um, again, who we serve. And it could be our, our prayer of praise to him as we sing this next song.